I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kilowatt. My name is Bodie, and I am your host. And on today's episode, I got a chance to sit down with FreeWire CEO Arkady Salsanov. If you're not familiar with FreeWire, they design and manufacture DC fast charge. In this interview, we're going to talk about FreeWire's approach to DC fast charging, which is a little unique. But before we get into the interview, I have a few things that I need to take care of. First up, we're going to do something similar that we did with Bart's episode where we had a longer episode, lightly edited, and then a shorter, more succinct episode that's about 36 minutes. There's about 10 minutes between the two difference. So if you want the full experience, go with the longer episode. If you want the you know shorter, just give me the facts, go with the shorter episode. I did this because Allison and Steve Sheridan, who are wonderful friends of mine and of this podcast, they were going on vacation. Allison does the NoSillaCast. She needed some content. So I volunteered that more concise version of the interview so that she could play that on her show. And she's she's actually released it. So if you haven't gone, go to podfeet.com, go to the NoSillaCast section and check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes. But that left me with two versions, and I got positive feedback with Bart's interview when I did two versions, so I'm going to do it again. I'm not going to do it every single time because it's a lot more work for me, but I'm going to do it again this time uh, just because I already have the content, and you can choose how you would like to listen. Again, go to podfeet.com and listen to Allison's podcast, The No Cast. By the way, this is the long episode, if you're curious. All right, we have some patrons to thank. So let's go ahead and jump over to that page. I would like to thank Sierra, my Sierra, Dale, Dawn, Cameron, and Nate. You know what? I'm going to round this out. I'm also going to thank Mark and James. Thank you all so much for supporting this show on Patreon and ACAST+. I appreciate each and every one of you. You are all super generous. All the money that goes into this show from Patreon and ACAST Plus goes into a special account, and that money is just used to pay for the show. The show's actually, it's not expensive to run, but it's not cheap either. <laughs> it's, it, 
there, there's a lot of monthly subscriptions you have to pay for to keep a podcast up and going. So I want to thank everybody who does contribute. And normally I would give a Patreon or an ACAST plug here, but I'm not going to do that. Y'all been very kind. And uh, we'll just leave it at that. Okie doke. Let's stop messing around and let's welcome Arcady to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Brody. So you are the founder of FreeWire. That's right. That's right. I founded FreeWire in 2014. So it's been about 10 years now. And I started the company after noticing this surge of electrification and transportation. I saw the first few Nissan Leafs hit the road in the San Francisco Bay Area at that point. It was a very, um, it was a microcosm. It hadn't hit the streets of New York or London or Paris and Tesla had just launched the Roadster and then eventually the Model S. And and I figured I wanted to solve the hardest possible problem within the industry. And and charging was clearly a, a, a difficult problem. So decided to address it. What what were you doing before you launched FreeWire? Yeah, it's an interesting story. Before FreeWire, as you know, you you know, we'll discuss this later on the show. We develop batteries and power electronics and uh, lots of very bleeding edge technology. You know, I knew nothing about batteries before that. In fact, all I really knew is that I put two of them in my remote control to make my TV work. Um, but at, before that, I was in the finance industry. I spent about a decade in investment management. I started off at the BN, at BNY Mellon immediately after after college. I started uh, building trading and accounting systems for them. Eventually, I started modeling um different portfolios and different investment strategies and was hired by a hedge fund based out of Boston called GMO. And no, it's not the same GMO as genetically modified organisms. It's GMO. Those are acronyms for the three founders of the, of the hedge fund. Uh, but I started a GMO and started portfolio modeling and trying to make investment decisions using quantitative models and and did that for a number of years, six or seven, before jumping ship into this kind of exciting new industry. Did was there like a like a there, there had to have been a pretty significant like hesitation of being going from uh, a, a stable job in finance to a industry that really wasn't even in its infancy, like it, it was pre-infant at this point with the Nissan Leaf and and the ship and the Tesla Roadster. What what was that feeling like for you? Uh, it, it was a lot of fear, honestly. And I'll talk about that in a second. But back to the, the hedge fund days, it was a lot of learning in a very short amount of time. I actually started there immediately after the global financial crisis in 2008. And I actually just watched The Big Short again yesterday on Netflix, which is an incredible movie for those who, who don't remember the global financial crisis. But I started at the hedge fund immediately after that and seeing you know, banking collapses and, you know, uh, investment strategies being thrown out the windows, decades old strategies that have previously worked and trying to figure out something new. We eventually started looking at emerging markets and at, at the BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, and figuring out if we can actually invest dollars there and make money. And, and so it was just a lot of excitement, a lot of learning. And it got to a point, I think, after six or seven years of doing that, I said, well, you know, I've, that that initial s- growth spurt or learning kind of development has has kind of stopped for me, and I'm I'm pretty much steady state in my job now. 
And it start, I started looking at other things. I had at that point moved to the San Francisco Bay Area. I still worked in the, in, at the hedge fund, but I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area. And I'd always had this passion for automotive. And if you go back to my childhood and teenage years, I was, I was a gearhead. I, I actually, you know, believe it or not, worked on cars every single weekend. My father was a taxi driver. He drove a cab for 26 years. Not owned, you know, a taxi company. I mean, he drove a cab for 26 years. And every weekend we were doing something. We were doing oil changes or uh, I did a transmission swap in our garage. I did an engine swap in our garage. And my relationship with him was, I think, centered around cars, right? We just worked on the car every single weekend. And and so I, I have always had a passion for automotive. I never kind of thought I would work in the legacy automotive industry, the, the big three, Detroit, didn't. I, but when I saw this, this kind of new industry forming, I, I said, wow, I can get in on the ground floor of something that's really exciting, something that a lot of people don't know about, something where I can learn a lot and, and sort of scratch the itch of working on automotive that I've, I've always had. And I know you, you probably feel that I see the Hot Wheels behind you kind of on your wall. Uh, sounds like you're a little bit of an automotive enthusiast as well. A car geek, as some might say. I'm not like these are for like if somebody emails me and they, they do something nice or, you know, whatever. I just be like, hey, you want me to send you an EV Hot Wheels? And they always say yes. So those are just for there. I'm, I'm more of a technology dork. Yeah. I don't even have the I don't have the ability to work on a carb side from, you know, changing maybe a fuel filter or uh, changing a battery out. Those are the, that's the most complicated I get. Well, to your point. I'm a technologist as well. And you look at an electric vehicle relative to an old combustion vehicle. An old combustion vehicle had, you know, all these cylinders firing, spark plugs. You had oxygen and fuel mix and create little tiny explosions thousands of times every minute inside your engine bay. It was very analog. It was very complex. And then all of a sudden you see the electric vehicle and it's a flat battery pack in most cases, which doesn't have any moving parts. And you have an engine, a motor, an electric motor that is not too dissimilar from the motor inside your washing machine, right? It's just kind of an advanced, faster, more reliable version of the motor that's in your, inside your washing machine. And everything else around that, that base is, is software, it's code. And so you turn this, this 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 vehicle and this kind of technology where you're harnessing the power of explosions into harnessing the power of software development and logic and technology and i think that spoke to me more so than oh this is an electric vehicle so it's different and new it, it actually i recognize that it's so much simpler and that the next generation of folks like yourself the technologists can get their head around it and people would want to work on this and the simplicity is, I think, what drives a lot of the value in the industry. And that's and that's not evident to people when they first look at it. Yeah, I would agree with that. I I, I grew up in a similar way as like my uncles and my dad were all very handy with that kind of stuff. My dad was an electrician, but I got a little nostalgic there. <laughs> Let's talk about the early days of FreeWire. What was it supposed to be? What do you, what'd you think it was going to be when you first started it? And what did it end up as? This is the little secret behind the name. What I thought FreeWire was going to be is, um, 
ubiquitous wireless charging for electric vehicles. And so what I actually thought we would do is lay inductive charging pads in road, so on highways, on every lane of that highway, and you'd be able to drive your vehicle, your electric vehicle, and charge it as you're driving. So you'd have these inductive pads that mate to the um, kind of receiver on your vehicle, and you would never actually need to charge because you'd be charged up by the road while driving. And we went pretty deep into that idea. I I remember within a few weeks of founding the company, I actually flew out to Oak Ridge National Lab in Tennessee, where they had developed this, this what they call dynamic wireless charging. Dynamic just means wireless charging while moving. Where they had developed dynamic wireless charging and they had demoed it on a golf cart. There was a golf cart with a receiver. There were inductive pads in the floor. They would drive that golf cart over the floor and the golf cart would be charged. Its battery would be charged as it was driving. And I just thought this was the most amazing thing in the world. I thought this is going to change. It's going to revolutionize everything. And and it's going to, you know, the, the electric vehicles are going to take off because of this particular technology. So I called the company FreeWire. I started doing research. I, I filed some IP and patents around wireless charging. And then I got hit with a brick wall of of uh, common sense, you could call it, which is that it's very expensive to try to lay wireless charging pads in in highway. At that point, I figured the cost would be about $2 million per mile of road per lane. And that's not including the utility infrastructure that would be necessary to support all of these different wireless charging pads. And I assumed you would need this heavy utility infrastructure per, let's call it, two miles of road. So every two miles of road, you need new utility infrastructure. And so you start to look at the costs of all that, and you realize, well, that's never going to happen. Not only are we not going to rebuild our roads, right? We don't have the wherewithal for that in this country. But also, your the utility infrastructure is just not there to support that availability of power. You don't have that much infrastructure and that much power, and you cannot deploy to all of these different locations. So quickly, I, I, I recognized, well, actually, there's a different problem that I've run into that I need to solve now. And the problem is that of the availability of utility infrastructure. If I can make utility infrastructure or infrastructure highly available, or if I can disaggregate utility infrastructure from charging, I can make charging more available, more ubiquitous. And so I started working through that idea, working through that problem, and eventually landed on batteries as a solution. It may seem like common sense today, I mean, frankly, Bodhi, but back when you, when you look at 2014, 10 years ago, that, that wasn't an obvious solution. And going down the road of developing battery storage to enable kind of high power, ultra fast charging seemed a little bit crazy. I was laughed out of a lot of rooms. Um, but I believed that there was no other way to do it because I had looked at every possibility at that point. You talked a little bit about batteries. Uh, from what I understand, your chargers have a battery pack inside them. Is that correct? Yeah, they have a, a very large battery pack embedded right inside the charger. It's almost it's a structural part of the whole system. So it's not a battery that's designed to support a separate charger. The battery, in, in essence, is the charger. You're, and so you're doing direct DC to DC. The battery is storing DC energy. 
the vehicle wants DC energy, and you're 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 basically pumping out power as quickly as possible from your battery and filling up the battery of the vehicle. That's and it's similar to the principle, is similar to the hot water tank in your house. So you you don't pull hot water from the utility, right? You pull cold water, and you have a tank inside your house that heats that up and stores it. And as long as you size the tank appropriately, you have enough hot water for your family to take showers throughout the whole day, right? Uh, every once in a while, we, once a year, you may have your uncles and aunts and their kids come and visit and stay at your house, and you may run out of hot water that one time. But that's generally, you know, outside the norm. That's two standard deviations out. Your the tank that you've kind of spec'd should be enough to to give you enough hot water for the house. And it's the same principle here. We're just replacing H2O with electrons. But in effect, it's a storage, it's a buffer system. Do these batteries connect together? If there's multiple chargers at one location, can, let's say, one's a little bit low, can the other ones bolster that? Or does it have to start pulling from the grid at that time? It starts pulling from the grid. So today, the batteries do not connect together to make one big battery. We do that via software, where we aggregate the batteries and we can bid their aggregate capacity into utility programs, but they don't physically connect today. And the reason we we decided not to do that initially was because there was added cost in then running conduit between each of the different systems. So you'd have to you'd have to rip up more of the parking lot in, in essence. Now our next generation product, the Boost Pro, that we're launching in at the end of Q1. Uh, in 2024, that product will connect all of the battery packs on your site together. And so if you have, let's say, six of our chargers, you have about a megawatt hour of battery storage capacity on your site. And and that provides some some pretty interesting values. On the current ones, if somebody pulled up in their Lucid Air, right, the Lucid Air can charge incredibly fast. Yeah. What kind of charge rate are they going to get? Yeah, so you would get up to 200 kilowatts. That's the peak charging rate of the system. I've actually seen it go a little bit higher than that because the the kilowatt number, it really depends on voltage and current. So I've seen, for example, we have a lot of customers with heavy-duty trucks, electric trucks, and I've seen those go up to 206, 207 kilowatts, but right about that range. And it'll hold that power level throughout the entire charge session as long as the vehicle can accept it. Now, what you have to remember about the vehicle itself is that it has a very high power rating, but only for a short period of time. When you start fast charging a vehicle, the power will rapidly ramp up, but it'll only stay there for usually a a few to 15 minutes and then start ramping down. And by the time you get to about 50, 60, 70% uh, state of charge in the vehicle, you've really ramped down that power. And we take advantage of that, meaning that's the portion of the charging curve where we're actually able to replenish our battery pack and get it ready for the next vehicle that shows up, if that makes sense. That does make sense. Yeah, that that's that was actually going to be my next question is how, like if there's people, people waiting, how are we um, ensuring that there's enough left in that battery for the next person that comes up now is it 168 kilowatt hours is that what i saw on your website for 160 kilowatt hours yeah 160 it's the question that everyone asks first and it's the right question to ask it's you're asking the question of 
well, what if my aunt and uncle and their kids come and visit every single weekend? I'm going to run out of hot water all the time. So first I'll tell you, I hope they don't come visit every single weekend. And likewise, in the world of charging, it's very rare that you have these large through this large throughput of traffic. Now, the system is designed to do up to about 20 charging sessions comfortably without running out of quote-unquote capacity. I've seen it go higher. So I was actually just looking at data from one of my customers in Vancouver, and I saw that that a number of their units did about 30, 30 to 35 charging sessions yesterday, just in one day alone, 30 to 35 charging sessions. That's a, that's a heck of a lot of charging. You typically won't see that kind of utilization, but it's a function of Labor Day, travel, weekend, holiday, et cetera. Um, but the point of, of the system is it's going to be, it's going to have enough capacity for the vast majority of, of charging sessions, charging applications, days of the year. If you are really reaching a point where your utilization is high enough that you're running out of battery constantly, then you're making so much money on that site, you need to install a second charger. So the break even is when you get to about six to eight charging sessions a day. If you're seeing six to eight charging sessions a day on average, you're breaking even. If you're seeing 10 to 15 charging sessions, you're seeing right around 10 to 20% IRR on that project. And you're incentivized at that point to install a new one versus traditional charging that's non-battery integrated think about what you have to do you have to first work with your utility and bring new service to the site so you have to call in my case in california pg and e uh i know you're in you're in arizona right so you probably call uh, uh, uh you know the public service SRP. Uh, SRP. yeah and srp would need to to deliver you uh, medium voltage service to your commercial site that could take three to four years to get that service to your site that's how long these projects are taking and then once they deliver that new service to your site you're going to have to install a very large transformer that's your cost switch gear that's your cost a new panel and so forth and so you, you you've spent all of this capex you spent all this time and you're probably thinking to yourself okay well now i'm going to install eight chargers or 10 chargers on that new transformer. The fact of the matter is you're not going to see eight to 10 times the utilization just because you installed eight to 10 times the number of charging stations. It'll take you probably at least six months, but more likely a year and a half for utilization to ramp up to the size of your install. And, and that's a drag on your returns if you're a project developer. And so you're better off sizing your installation to the utilization that's there today, install that charger, start making money. And if utilization does creep up and you risk running out of the battery, install a second one and then a third one and a fourth one and so forth. Uh, and that's what we find our customers doing. Is there any uh, advantage like in terms of the infrastructure that needs to be put in place to go with free wire based on, uh, you know, compared to any of your competitors? Yeah, we don't require utility upgrades on sites. So we're going to use whatever power you have available on your site. You know, our typical customers are their gas stations, convenience stores. You know, we've publicly announced a national rollout with Philip 66, with Chevron, with BP, um, 
with Parkland, which is an, a fueling retailer up in Canada, the largest fueling retailer in Canada, actually. And these sites typically have a little bit of spare capacity, but not a lot. And so their choices are either use that spare capacity to install one, two, or three boost chargers, or I work with my local utility and bring in new power, which again is a two to three year project. And and the costs are hundreds of thousands to look to single digit millions of dollars. And they're more and more so choosing that I'm going to install a boost charger. I'm going to use my existing power, no upgrades required. I don't need the utility to intervene in my project. And, and I'm going to get up and running and charging quickly. So the big difference, the advantage is I'm not requiring you to build out anything. I'm not requiring a new transformer or new switch gear. Use what you have existing on your site and then leverage that battery as, as your buffer. And you said something earlier uh, that I'd like to go back to. This, this would actually obviously be a little bit of a benefit to the grid overall because you're pulling mostly from the battery and then you're replenishing, I would assume, at a, a slower rate than what you would uh, be pulling if you were charging a car. But did you mention that you can sell this, uh, some of this back to the grid if, like during times when charging is slow, but the grid needs a little extra pep? And we do. Yeah. And so this is the brilliant part. In fact, I'll, I'll give you just an example. I have a customer in, in Texas who at night they see negative pricing of electricity. So at night, because Texas has a lot of wind, they, uh, are, we turn on our battery pack. We consume as much energy overnight as possible. And our customer is actually getting paid to consume that. They're getting paid to take those electrons. And then during the day, they sell those electrons to EV drivers. I mean, that's, that's an awesome business model. I would do that every single day. Um, but that's my end goal is, you know, my, my goal is not to have the largest charging network in the country. That would be nice, but that's not ultimately what I'm looking for. Ultimately, what we are doing is deploying energy storage behind the meter. And, and this has been a holy grail, Bodhi, for a, a long time. A lot of companies have gone out there and said, we should install battery packs everywhere. Yes, in your home, and there are companies doing that. Tesla is selling you a, a battery pack that you can install in your garage. But actually, battery packs in commercial settings are much more valuable than battery packs in your home. And I know that's going to sound hard to believe to some of your listeners, because obviously at home, it backs up your house. But I can tell you that if, if you lose power at a gas station or a convenience store, that owner is going to lose about $70,000 a day in lost revenues and in loss of product. You know? and, and on top of that, the grid system, the, our utility grid at these commercial locations, that's where it's weakest. It's not, where you're, it's not in these residential locations. It's in these commercial locations where you have high consumers of power. And so having a battery at every commercial site is a holy grail. And, but the fact is you can't just go in there and, and, and give the batteries away free, right? You need to sell them. And selling a battery is a very, very hard task. You can imagine me walking into a, a retailer like a Chick-fil-A and trying to explain to them the value of a battery and its impact on your demand charges and its impact on your utility rate tariffs. It's a, it's a really tough conversation to have, frankly speaking. Instead, 
we don't go in there and we, we don't sell batteries. We sell you a charger. And a lot of times you're looking for chargers. You obviously see the incentives that are available for them. Your competitors are installing chargers. Your consumers are asking for charging infrastructure on your site. And with us, you happen to get the battery for free. And then we unlock that battery after it's deployed to, to sell energy back to the grid, to provide demand charge management, to provide time of use arbitrage, and a number of other very valuable uh, uh, kind of technologies and, and in, interactions with the grid that actually help strengthen the grid rather than hurt it. And, and that's where I, I get really excited. So is this all controlled like on an app for whoever the property owner is or whoever's managing that? Or is this something that they need to set up with FreeWire ahead of time? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, usually, frankly speaking, the, the, the site host, again, a, a, a facilities manager or an operator of a, a local convenience store or a fast food restaurant, they want nothing to do with this. They don't want to go into an app to set their pricing policies, to set what time of day they can bid into utility programs and not. They don't really, frankly, often understand the concept of a demand charge or of peak and off-peak rates. And, and so they want to offload that complexity to us, and we do that. We tell them, hey, we've done an assessment of your site, and we think that by bidding into these particular programs and pulling energy at these times of the day, we can save you $4,000 a month on your energy bill. And some of that includes a value to the utility that they're then paying you for. And the retailer says, great, fantastic, turn it on. And then we turn on that functionality and we manage it as time goes on. So it's not anything the retailer has to look at or set or remember to adjust over time. We, we sort of just do it for them because they, they ultimately have a business run. I mean, they're, they're out there selling you you know, Red Bulls and coffees and car washes. And think about it for a gas station for, uh, you know, for decades, their largest cost driver was fuel, right? It was hydrocarbons. And they became over these decades, very sophisticated in managing that fuel. They understood when to buy it, how much to store in their underground tanks versus how, you know, uh, depending on spot pricing of, of electrons, they understand how to price it to the consumer. Should I make it one cent more expensive or one cent cheaper than, than my competitor next door? So they very, became very sophisticated around the supply chain and the value chain of hydrocarbons. But now they have this entirely new supply chain of electrons. And it's something they don't understand because the language and terminology and, and the business model is totally different. You're not just buying fuel, you're now having to decide, do I pull during the day or during the night? Do I uh, go under this medium general rate tariff or do I go under the time of use rate tariff? What does sending energy back to the grid mean for me? Is it an, uh, a NEM rate or not? I mean, there's a lot of complexity built in here. And we go in there and we, we basically say, we're going to do for you what you've, in, for electrons, what you've learned to do over hydrocarbons. And our battery, inside the boost charger is like the storage tank you have for gasoline underneath your site. We're, we're, we're allowing you to hedge against these spot prices that move, frankly, even faster in electricity than they do in, in, in fuels. Do you want to talk a little bit about the Nax connector and what that means for the charging industry? Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, 
as a consumer, I've been driving electric vehicles now for over 10 years. As a consumer, it is a better connector. Let's just put it out there. It is smaller. It's lighter. It's, it carries both AC and DC on the same pins for all of your technologist listeners. It, whereas the CCS connector, it carries AC and DC on different pins, which makes it larger, which makes it heavier, which makes it more expensive to, to build. Um, so NAX is a better connector through and through. But it, at the end of the day, it is just a different plug, right? It's, it's, in my mind, it's like the lightning cable versus USB-C. Yeah, USB-C is better, but I, I also don't mind using the lightning cable. I've gotten used to it. So the switch from CCS to NACs is not really one of a better cable for consumers. That's not really what matters here. What really matters, it is the OEMs, the automotive OEMs, admitting that they made a mistake years ago not building out a charging network. Tesla did. Tesla did the hard thing, which was we're going to gonna need to build out our own charging network because there is no reliable and ubiquitous charging across the country. And the automotive OEMs outside of Tesla, the, the traditional ones, said, oh, we're going to let free market economics rule. If we get these vehicles on the road, they will come. And the they is charging networks that are reliable, ubiquitous, easy to use for consumers. Well, guess what? That, that didn't happen. And them announcing that they're going to go to NAX is, one, an admission of, of guilt, right? It's saying we made a mistake in not rolling it out. And two, it is giving Tesla something very powerful, which is now Tesla is going to be able to gather data from all of these vehicles. And they're going, Tesla is going to have a touch point with the consumers every other day. For an automotive OEM like a Ford and a GM, they yearn for those consumer touch points, right? They want you to, to answer their email blast. They want you to walk into the dealership and talk to your kind of representative they want you to access their clunky apps. Whereas Tesla's going, well, they're going to need to charge every two days. They're probably going to use the Tesla app to do that. And I'm going to be able to get the lion's share of, of kind of, uh, of views from that consumer by getting them to access my charging network. So this is a very big deal for the, for the traditional OEMs. And it, it very much weakens their position, right? Because now Tesla's going to, be able to access their consumers almost every day and that's not a position they want to find themselves in yeah i do i do have like when ford and gm announced that they were going to do that i was like well that's going to be short-lived until something better comes along i am a little more heartened that the society of automotive engineers are going to turn it into an actual standard um, which a lot of the spec is already done by tesla so it's not like they have to work that hard at it but the overall thing that concerned me the most was all of this adoption was happening in June and July, and there was no standard. I, I don't want Tesla to control the standard. I want some third-party independent group to control that standard. So, I hear your point. I would say that standards are what got us CCS. That's true. So uh, I also would like the standard a standard to be there and a governing body for it. But I know that when there are too many cooks in the kitchen, you get J1772 glued on top of DC pins. Yeah. Charging is a, is a, is a kind of an industry body, but, but SAE would be the ones to, to kind of govern the actual spec. 
no matter what we do, I mean, we're going to still have to have Chatamo connections, CCS2 connections for a very long time because it's not like people are going to throw their cars away. Which is an, which is ultimately, unfor- and unfortunately, it's an added cost and that cost is going to be borne by consumers. If I have to install more charging infrastructure to make space for a Chatamo cable and a NAX cable and a CCS cable, and I won't get full utilization across all those cables. Remember, Chatamo, I have a number of units with both CCS on one handle and Chatamo on the other handle. Chatamo gets very little utilization, nothing compared to CCS. And But that's an added cost. That means my unit is less utilized than it otherwise would have been. And ultimately, that's going to be passed down to consumers in the form of higher per kilowatt hour pricing. So, uh, you know, from on the one hand, okay, you have the optionality and the flexibility for consumers who have those existing vehicles. On the other hand, they're all going to be paying more. For those who don't know, like Chatamo connector here in the United States is basically a Mitsubishi hybrid and a Nissan Leaf. And that those are the two cars that use it. There might be some outlier that I'm not aware of, but those are basically the only two vehicle models that use that plug. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I've, I, I would just be very direct. I frankly recommend all of my customers to not install Chatmo today. And I get a lot of flack for this on Twitter and social media. But the fact of the matter is I, I'm very utilitarian. I honestly believe you install Chatmo on a site, the ultimate cost to that site host are going to be higher. And they're either going to not want to install another charger or they're going to pass on those higher costs to the consumer, both of which are, are bad scenarios. Well, let's say, let's say today I bought one of your chargers, right? And put it up in front of my house. I'm charging people. I have a Chatamo connector. And then I was like, oh, that's a mistake. Uh, can, I, can, can I pay you to come back and swap that out with something different? You can, but it is, it's like open heart surgery. It's pretty hard. Um, you know, people underestimate how difficult it really is, but you need to char- change the charging controller, the cable itself. You need to ch- change on the cabinet the actual place where the cable goes back into rest because now it's it's a different cable, right? I need to change the software inside the system to recognize now that it's CCS instead of Chatmo. Uh, you know, I need to change all of our internal documentation to for my field service team to know that it's a CCS unit instead of chat. Well, there's a lot that has to go into it on top of the truck roll that, that ultimately has to have, have, has to happen. So, I mean, it is not a cheap swap. And again, someone's got to pay for that. Sure. And then going forward, Freewire has adopted NACS. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. We have working units in our lab here. And, um, and so we're going to be launching it as, a a skew meaning that customers will be able to select ccs and nax or nax and nax or 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 dual ccs um starting uh q2 of next year right on and will that go on uh just the new boost plus chargers or will that be available on the current chargers the boost pro yeah right now we don't have any any plans to put on the current chargers well, arcadia is there anything that i should have asked you that i didn't is there anything that i'm i just missed I think it's, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking of what this market and industry will look like eventually. And I think there are two schools of thought. And one is we're going to see these massive charging plazas. In fact, an announcement just went out uh, today or yesterday that Tesla has built a 
98 unit supercharger plaza. Uh, and you see a lot of your, your, your listeners have probably been to the Bakersfield location where you have just dozens and dozens of chargers. And those are great, but those serve one specific use case, which is when you and I, you know, once or twice a year drive from San Francisco to LA or LA to Vegas or Phoenix to Vegas, right? Yes, you're going to need these large hubs in those locations. But I think the bigger market opportunity are a few chargers in every commercial and retail location. It's where you and I go anyways. It's the Starbucks, it's Dunkin', it's Chipotle, it's the supermarket. I don't need 50 chargers at each of these sites. I need two everywhere I go. And, and that's, I think, what the future of charging will look like. You're, you're not going to need, to need to drive to a special location. You just be able to charge on your way, and it's going to be available everywhere you go. And, and that's what we're building for. If that is the future you believe in, then having kind of a battery that's, that's embedded within that charger makes a lot of sense. So I, I think it's the industry needs to think about who the true owners of charging infrastructure are going to be. I think ultimately the winners here are going to be the retailers. Um, and because they've been doing this for a hundred years, they've been able to sell you gas at almost zero gross margin as you know, people are usually surprised to hear this, but there's almost no gross margin on gas. It's it, they sell it at close to cost. Um, but they can make up their money inside the store. When you go in and you buy a big gulp and a, and a, and a beef jerky, they're, they're making a ton of money on that. And I think the same thing will happen with charging. For sure. For sure. Do you know, um, based on that strategy that you said, a few chargers everywhere you go, right? Are, are Nevi funds, are they available for that kind of strategy? Like I, cause I know they want them along, you know, major roadways and things like that. The chargers, is there anything that would, that uh, somebody was listening and they owned a business, is there anything they'd be able to take advantage of? Yes. So the ne- once you have deployed charging every 50 miles per the NEVI standard across your major highways, any remaining dollars in the NEVI program can be used at any location throughout the state. So, um, and a lot of these, these states will have significant amounts of NEVI money remaining. Now, that's on the NEVI front, which is, remember, a competitive program. But there is much more accessible and, in fact, in some cases, more lucrative programs outside of NEVI. So we have the uh, what's called the EV charging and the energy storage tax credits underneath the IRA. And those can cover 50 to 70% of the cost of the installation. And they're not competitive. They're available to anyone. As long as you pay taxes, you can get these very lucrative tax credits. And so a lot of our customers are using those instead of going after Nevi, which is burdensome, takes a lot of paperwork and so on and so forth. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Well, Arkady, thank you so much for coming on today and discussing this with us. Uh, tell us where we can find you or find FreeWire. I mean, our website, freewiretech.com. And uh, honestly, you know, I spent a lot of time on LinkedIn. So if anybody wants to connect with me personally, you can find me, my uh, name is spelled A-R-C-A-D-Y. Just type Arcady Freewire, you will easily find me. It's a unique name. Um, so I, I appreciate it, Bodhi. I'm happy to be on and, and uh, we'll have to come back anytime you, you choose to have me. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right. I want to thank Arcady for coming on the show. He was very knowledgeable. He was a, a good guest. He had a lot of information. I learned a lot from talking to him. And most importantly, he was a nice person. So, Arcady, thank you so much for coming on the show. And with all the crazy stuff going on in the EV world and the world in general, I'm certain that we'll have reason to have him on again. So I'll put all of Arcady's links in the show notes. So if you're interested in following up with him or, you know, just following what he's up to and what FreeWire is up to, you can do that. It'll be in the show notes. All right, everybody, that is it for me this week. Hope you all enjoyed the show, whichever version you happen to listen to. I hope you all have a wonderful week, a wonderful day. What is it? Uh, this episode will go out on a Tuesday. So I will talk to you on Friday where we'll discuss Tesla's Q3 2023 earnings calls. All right, everybody. Thanks so much. I will talk to you soon. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. 
here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com